This is Word of Mouth. I'm Erica Janik. When you think about civics and government, you probably think about voting and politicians and Washington, D.C., but the government touches every part of our life, from birth to death. Today, we bring you a story from Civics 101 on birth. What does it take to be born an American citizen? And how do you prove it? And why does it matter? I want to start this episode at the very beginning. Of everything, I mean. I want to start this episode the way everybody starts. I love that moment when you see uh, a mother or family meet their newborn for the very first time. After all these months of anticipation, um, I continue to find it to be one of the most moving things I have ever been lucky enough to be present for. This is Dr. Mary-Kate Hatton. It's such an honor to be there. Um, It will never get old for me. Mary-Kate is a family medicine physician who practices obstetrics at Concord Hospital in New Hampshire. She cares for pregnant mothers, she delivers babies, and ideally, she becomes that baby's doctor once they enter the world. I think most people are amazed that in the end, the most important part is when you actually meet your baby. Um, And sometimes I think those moments when you first realize, oh my goodness, there's this whole baby I need to take care of, I think sometimes that can be surprising. So Nick, you have experienced this moment twice, the birth of a new baby. Did did you feel like instinct kicked in or were you a little Absolutely terrified. <laughs> I couldn't be- I couldn't believe they let me take it home. It. <laughs> I couldn't believe they let me take it home in the car after he was born. So you had no idea what to do? I'd read a lot of books. I had a lot of people's advice, but when it's the real thing, yeah, I didn't know what to do. Well, luckily, even if you are one of the many parents who don't immediately know what to do with this tiny human you're responsible for, there are systems in place to make sure that that baby gets off on the right foot. Mary-Kate made clear that there are plenty of ways to have a baby in the U.S., but best practices dictate important steps for doctors and nurses to take. So after a baby is delivered, we're immediately making sure that the baby is breathing, that the baby has nice tone and is able to move. We're hoping that the baby cries. Uh, And we check that both at the first minute that a baby's been born and again at five minutes to help give an idea of how the baby is transitioning as it's delivered. I love this idea that this human enters the world and immediately there's this transformation going on because they're adapting to life on the outside. And you know, meanwhile, the person or people who brought this child into the world, they are adapting too. My role as your physician is to make sure I tell you the up-to-date guidelines and recommendations and to tell you um, what we consider to be safest practice and how to keep your baby thriving and healthy. But ultimately, we're a team, 
And parents know what's important for their child, and I trust parents' instinct. And while I can advise them medically on things, I also trust that they love that child and that they're going to work with me to let them know what's working and where they need more support and for things that maybe not be working for them. So doctors like Mary-Kate are going to make sure that the baby is eating, trying to coach the mother through breast or bottle feedings, monitoring for jaundice and weight gain, making sure the parents have a car seat, making sure that that baby can breathe in that car seat. And if this baby is born in America, well, there are a lot of other gears that start to grind. But before we pull back the curtain on starting your life in the United States, care to introduce yourself, my fellow American? I'm Nick Capodice. And I'm Hannah McCarthy. And today kicks off the first in our six-part series on bureaucracy and you. Our civics ourselves, if you will. It's the way that government, that law, that institutions interact with you, mold you, shape you, control you, and help you over the course of your lifetime. From birth to death. And today we're going brass tacks, absolute basics, the facts of American life before you've lived very much life at all. Facts like, I can't name my baby the exclamation mark symbol. Actually, naming laws vary from state to state, so that's kind of a case-by-case basis kind of thing. And anyway, the name is not nearly as important to being an American as the circumstances of your birth. So, where you're born and who your parents are? Exactly. And it may sound obvious, but those facts mean everything in the U.S. So this goes back to the 14th Amendment. Say hello to Mr. Dan Casino, professor of political science at Fairleigh Dickinson University. He is also a generous repeat guest on the show. The Reconstruction period after the Civil War ended up defining citizenship because we changed the Constitution in a really major way back then. The Civil War Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And these are there in order to try and protect the rights of freed slaves in the southern states and make sure the southern states treat everyone equally because obviously they didn't want to. That's why we had a civil war. How do the Reconstruction Amendments apply to babies being born today? Those amendments were designed to treat a very specific problem, right? They were. But in fixing that problem, we changed something huge. After the emancipation of thousands of enslaved people, there was this problem. These people had been counted as three-fifths of a person before the Reconstruction Amendments, but they were not citizens. They didn't have any rights. Then Congress passes an amendment saying, okay, slavery is now illegal. So we've got a bunch of free Americans. They're citizens, right? So we, the state of Georgia, get to decide who's a citizen of Georgia and who's not a citizen of Georgia. And we're going to give certain rights to citizens of Georgia that we don't give to non-citizens of Georgia. Why does that matter? The fear was, after the uh, emancipation of the slaves, the state of Georgia was going to decide, all those newly freed African Americans, well, they might be federal citizens, but they're not citizens of Georgia, so we don't have to give them any rights under the state constitution of Georgia. So the 14th Amendment is trying to get rid of that possibility. The 14th Amendment shows up to say, look, everybody who was born in the United States is a citizen of both the United States generally and the state in which they reside. So before that, what made you a citizen? That was actually up to the states, which is why there was that risk that pro-slavery states would deny citizenship to newly freed people. But after the 14th Amendment, 
If you're born here, you're a citizen. So this is birthright citizenship, right? Is that what we call it? Exactly. Citizenship is your birthright if you're born on American soil. Or to American parents. For the most part, there are some exceptions having to do with how long your American parent resided in the U.S. or was working for the U.S. abroad. Also, Nick, here's a wacky one. A person is a citizen if they are of, quote, unknown parentage, found in the U.S. under the age of five, and if nobody can prove they were born elsewhere before they reach the age of 21. How often does that happen? How many people achieve citizenship that way? It sounds almost Dickensian. But so it sounds like your very best bet is being born on U.S. soil. Yes, but that is an aspect of birthright citizenship that people debate heavily uh, because there are a lot of people who feel like non-citizens use birth on U.S. soil as a way to, like, game the system. Well, because it means that if you are not a citizen and you show up in the United States and you have a baby, that baby is a citizen. And there's nothing anyone can do about that as long as they're born in the United States. And this has led to a growth of what's called birth tourism in the United States, where well-heeled foreigners from around the world come to the United States uh, and set up in birthing suites at hospitals in major cities and give birth there in order to give their child a chance at American citizenship when that child becomes an adult. All right, but to be clear, it isn't actually gaming the system. It's the law. It's totally legal. And right now in the U.S., babies born here get U.S. citizenship. Yes, except for the babies of foreign diplomats. There's this clause in the 14th Amendment that says you're a citizen if you're born in the U.S. and, quote, subject to the jurisdiction thereof. But foreign diplomats are not subject to U.S. courts or authorities. They have diplomatic immunity. All right, so not subject to the jurisdiction thereof equals not a citizen. But if we're looking at a non-diplomat's baby born on American soil, we are looking at an American baby, even though people argue about that. Correct. Like being swaddled in an American flag. Or like, have you ever played The Sims? A little bit. You know that green diamond that floats <laughs> over their heads? What's that called? It's called the plum bob. An American plum bob. An American plum bob. Floating over your head. <laughs> Except your plum bob is invisible. Because, you know, yeah, you've got citizenship, but, but you can't actually enjoy it until someone makes it official. So you can be a U.S. citizen, but not actually get any of the benefits of being a U.S. citizen? Right, because how can I know that you're really a citizen? I mean, I got to have it in writing. When you're born, the first thing you have to do is register the birth with the government. You have to let the government know that someone has been born here and generate a birth certificate from that. And that birth certificate is a legal document. It's kind of like if a tree falls in a forest, does anybody hear it? Right. In this case, if no one writes it down, authorizes it, the question is, did it really happen? So if you have no birth certificate and you are not white, you are much more vulnerable. This is Susan Pearson. She's a history professor at Northwestern University, and she's working on a book about birth registration in the U.S. Right. You are vulnerable if something goes wrong, if you're picked up by the police to deportation. Although we have near universal birth registration in the U.S., the more on the margins you are, the less likely you are to have your birth registered. Wait, so she's talking about American citizens getting deported? Does that happen? It's actually estimated that thousands of Americans are detained or deported every year in the U.S. 
and you're vulnerable enough just having a certain last name or looking a certain way. But if on top of all that, your American birth was never registered, you are in real trouble. How do you prove that you're a citizen? There's this pretty well-known story of a young woman in Texas whose birth was unregistered and who had very few official records of her life. My name is Alicia Faith Pennington, and I am a U.S. citizen by birth. However, I was born at home, and my parents neglected to file a birth certificate or a birth record of any kind. They also never got me a social security number. Now, in Alicia's case, immigration is not exactly breathing down her neck. She is a white woman. However, she can't get a passport. She can't get a driver's license. Her home state of Texas, as a result of her case, ended up passing a law which basically made it a criminal offense for parents not to register their children's birth. All right. For some people, there's this threat of deportation and they're not able to get a passport a driver's license, or a social security card. Also, think about all of the other inconveniences that could crop up. A birth certificate doesn't just prove that you're a citizen, it proves your age. And think about all of the age restrictions in the U.S. At 16, you can go to adult prison. At 18, you can vote. At 21, you can drink. At 35, you can run for president. Without your birth certificate, legally speaking, you do not have an age. But if you go back even 100 years in the U.S., the whole age thing is not as big of a deal. A lot of people in the 19th century and even into the 20th century actually didn't know exactly how old they were and didn't actually know exactly what their birthdays were or what their children's birthdays were. Or if you did bother to make note of your child's birth, it was probably in the family Bible or maybe your church took note of the day when your baby was baptized. But it wasn't exactly an official document. Right, but what about the president thing? You have to be 35 years old. That's in the original Constitution. And aren't there age requirements for senators and reps and that sort of stuff? There are. But then again, when the framers wrote the Constitution, they weren't expecting anyone other than wealthy, white, literate, landed gentry to end up in office. And at the time, if anyone was having their birth recorded, it was those upper-class people. So possessing the knowledge of your age is like de facto privilege of its own back in the day. Like, the framers all probably knew their own birthdays. Right. And then the cobbler, let's say, who made James Madison's shoes, he might be able to estimate his age based on family lore and rough dates. It's like the further away you get from privilege and power, the further you get from that specific birthday. Frederick Douglass, the famous abolitionist and escaped slave, begins his autobiography by saying that he doesn't know when he was born and that slave owners kept this information from their slaves and that this was, for him, evidence of the way that African Americans under slavery were treated like chattel, like animals, right, and not like human beings. But In reality, a lot of plantation owners actually did keep records of the births and deaths of their slaves. So even though not really knowing your age was not uncommon, there is something special about age, even in the early United States. Withholding birthdays even when they knew exactly when an enslaved person was born, 
was a way for slave owners to further strip that enslaved person of identity and power and access. Because age does have this elevated status in our Constitution. Voting, serving in elective office, serving on a jury, those kinds of things that um, we understand as being sort of primary ways that we would distinguish a, a democracy from another kind of form of government, those are actually all bounded by age. Even before there's birth registration and therefore a really easy way for people to show how old they are, we already have rules about what you can and can't do as a citizen based on your age. Right. I'm thinking about today, and we often use age as this marker for what you can't do. Like you can't get married or drive a car or work most jobs if you're under a certain age. When did that all start? Child labor laws start getting passed. Again, this starts in New England like birth registration does. Um, in the middle of the 19th century, as soon as you start having really factory labor. And, you know, the factories of the mid-19th century are not the factories of the 20th century. But people start to get a little worried about, you know, is it good for their bodies to be in these more dangerous working environments. So we started to look at little kids working in mills and being horribly injured. And we started to think, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't let those little kids work in those mills. But change came slowly. I mean, most of the earliest child labor laws had no provisions for proof of age in them at all. It would just say something like, you know, you can't work in the cotton mill unless you're over the age of 14. And so... People would just show up and whoever's doing the hiring at the mill would say, well, how old are you? And you'd say, I'm 14. You'd say whatever the law said, right? I mean, it might be true or it might not. And uh, they'd say, OK. That, that makes no sense. What if you have a particularly tall or strong 11-year-old and mom and dad aren't quite sure how old they are, so they might as well say 14 so the kid can get to work? Exactly. That's the problem. That age requirement is all well and good, but it doesn't mean anything if you don't actually know how old you are. Or if people can fudge the numbers, which they do. And that's around the time the National Child Labor Committee starts ramping things up. And they think that a lot of children are working underage in factories, right? And so they press states to pass laws that are a little more stringent, that have some kind of enforcement mechanism, that have some kind of system where instead of just walking into the factory's hiring office and saying, OK, I'm here, and the supervisor being like, great, you know, here's a broom, go sweep the floor, they want to say that the child has to present some kind of proof of their age. And in most places, this is an affidavit of age, which is supplied by going to a local notary public. Close to a birth certificate, but no cigar. It ends up being basically the same situation as before. Mom and dad can just say little Janie is 14. But then there was this big investigation in 1895 in New York City done by the state legislature, there was a widespread feeling among, again, child labor opponents that this function was no better than parents walking into employment offices with their kids, right? Because notaries are getting paid for performing this service. They don't care. They're not law enforcement officers. They want to get their 25 cents and 
their view of their job is, I don't decide the truth. I just certify that a person said this to me, right? So there's this big expose of the notary system and child labor opponents really begin to press for what they call documentary proof of age. I love a good expose. They get things done. Yeah, and this one is no exception. Child labor opponents took a long, hard look at the system and they decided that they knew what to do. There's only one way to ensure an accurate age for a kid. A baby must be registered when they are born. And in a narrow window, too. Could be three days, it could be three months, but the point is that there's no incentive for anyone to lie at the time that a birth is registered, right? You're not thinking, well, you know, 12 years from now, I'm going to want to say that Janie is 14 and not 12, right? The other thing about birth registration laws is that in most places, they make the duty to report the birth the job of the birth attendant. This system isn't perfect, right? For example, there were a lot of immigrants coming to the U.S. at this time, and they were out of luck when it came to proving their age. And the race listed on a birth certificate was a weapon in the hands of those who sought to disenfranchise people of color in the U.S. But ultimately, we did get to nearly 100 percent of births being registered in this country. Nearly. But that nearly kind of trips me up. Because at this point in American history, that birth certificate is the golden ticket, right? I mean, not only does it help keep you safe from deportation, it also helps get you a license, passport, register for school, get married, get a social security card. Yes. Also, by the way, the social security card, that is another big one in terms of ID in the U.S. And so there's this box you can check off when you get your birth certificate and the Social Security Administration will send you one. But if you miss that boat, you end up having to prove your citizenship in another way to get a delayed social. Sometimes a religious or hospital record is enough, but that can be a real catch-22. Okay, so do we have a right to a birth certificate? Like, are my rights being violated if my parents don't register me? I mean, it's it's so basic to be able to establish who you are, right? And so for parents to deny that to children, it comes to be seen as almost as criminal. And um, in fact, the UN has a Charter of Children's Rights, which was passed in 1938. Yeah, but that's the UN, I mean, it's not our Constitution. Well, no, this is actually a state's thing. So all states have some kind of language in their statutes that requires a physician, midwife, parent, or some other person present at a birth to register the birth of that child, usually within five to ten days. In some cases, if a doctor or midwife fails to do this, they can have their license suspended until they register that baby. But there are still people who don't register their child's birth for other reasons. They're part of the sovereign citizen movement, right? And and they, they're people who see and have a kind of very libertarian view, right, that who see registering your birth as a form of submission to the state that is illegitimate and that is giving up a piece of your autonomy and a piece of your sovereignty. It's not just disenfranchised or marginalized or poor or rural populations that may be susceptible to not receiving a birth certificate. There are people out there who say, look, you can't make me submit to the government and you can't make me force my child to do that either. But some of these kids do grow up 
wanting a birth certificate for various reasons. They might want to get a legal job or travel, for instance. But it's much harder to prove where and when you were born when you're 18 years old. It's amazing to me that this piece of paper, this hallmark of boring bureaucracy, is like the key to the whole city. But what do you get for that? If the birth certificate is the key to protections and privileges, what are those protections and privileges? Like right out the gate? What do you get the minute you come wailing into this world? Yeah. Okay, day one, you're a brand new person here in the U.S., What does that make you in the eyes of the Constitution? Children have rights as citizens of the United States, um, and then they have some rights um, even when they're not citizens of the United States based on case law or statutory law um, rather than constitutional law. This is Sue Mangold, Chief Executive Officer of the Juvenile Law Center. It's a nonprofit that advocates for the rights of children in the U.S. So usually when you try to understand the constitutional rights of children, you begin with a series of Supreme Court decisions, Meyer, Prince, Pierce, Yoder. The interesting thing about these cases is that they weren't actually brought on behalf of the children. They're about what and how a teacher can teach or how a parent or guardian raises a child. Because when it comes to what you get, as this new young person in America, a lot of that has to do with the adults around you. What are their rights when it comes to you? They're pretty limited, aren't they? Yes and no. You still have this principle of a parent raising a child as they see fit. This balance between parental rights, children's rights, and states' obligations. And so, you know, there's a whole line of cases around states being able to order medical care, and it's more or less limited to when, you know, the medical care is widely approved and is life-saving. But there's, you know, cases on the margins that don't require quite as high a standard. Um, And in terms of education, parents can educate children at home, they can send them to private schools, they can send them to public school. But there are quite extensive state regulations, even of homeschooling. And so the parents can make choices, but they are limited again. Sue describes this triangle of parents' rights, children's rights, and states' rights. And children's rights have a lot to do with not being abused and not being neglected and also being educated. And the states are the ones who enforce those rights. What if somebody under the age of 18 decides their parent is just not for them. Can they divorce their parents? They can. That would be emancipation. Children seek emancipation all the time. Um, They seek access under a range of laws that give them access to health care and reproductive health care and mental health care and addiction services um, without their parents' consent, mindful that their parents would not consent, but the laws for all kinds of public health reasons give the child their own right to seek the services, even if they're well below the age of 18. And again, that depends on the state's laws. It 
seems like the, the story of children's rights in the U.S. at its simplest is about our understanding children, as hokey as that might sound. Like we went from looking at them as many adults to thinking of childhood as this separate stage of life to thinking maybe that means they shouldn't operate heavy machinery in a mill or get married to finally realizing they need extra defense against abuse and neglect. It's taken hundreds of years, which is funny because people think you're just going to magically know what to do when you have a baby of your own. But as a nation, we still aren't really sure how to raise a kid. No, it's been slow progress. But being born in America, I think, increasingly means that you're being looked out for. And I think there's also an increasing attempt to listen to young people, whether that's literally or by looking at their brains and development. And as with all shifts in our democracy, when you give a group a voice, the system starts to respond. Yes, and kids do have a voice, all right. You can find more Civics 101 and the series on life stages at civics101podcast.org. It's summer, or, well, nearly there. A time of year when our thoughts turn to vacations, lake houses, beach blankets, roller coasters, mountains. Mount Washington is famously home of the world's worst weather, but it also hosts a huge amount of tourist infrastructure. Outside In brings us our next tale of how that mountain was conquered and how that process became the template for mountain tourism nationwide. Here's Sam Evans-Brown. P.T. Barnum wasn't exactly a humble guy. He called his famous Big Top Circus the greatest show on earth. But a show like his doesn't just pop into existence. You have to build it. You've got to travel the world, assemble the freak show, buy the elephants and lions, train the trainers, pay the clowns, and then pack all of that craziness onto a train. But when he stood on top of Mount Washington, the tallest mountain in the northeastern United States, it took his breath away. He called this simple peak, this barren summit, the second greatest show on earth. But what he might not have realized is that this experience had been carefully constructed, just like his circus. The wild, untouched, uninterpreted, unmediated scenery is nothing. It's just wilderness. Scenery has to be interpreted, has to be mediated, has to be made to make sense to people. For this next piece, Outside In is taking you back in time to tell you how a group of pioneers turned one of the world's most inhospitable mountaintops into a premier tourist destination. And in so doing, did more than just build some roads and a couple of hotels, but helped construct the very way we experience natural landscapes and mountain vistas. Here to help me tell this story is producer Taylor Quimby. P.T. Barnum didn't really know it when he stood on the summit, but Mount Washington is sort of a meteorological freak show. It sits squarely at the intersection of three major storm tracks in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. 
At less than 6,300 feet, it's barely a hill compared to peaks in the Rockies, the Alps, or the Himalayas. And yet, Mount Washington is routinely placed alongside Everest and K2 as one of the deadliest in the world. In the winter, the climate is Arctic, literally. Even in the summer, warm, sunny temperatures can drop suddenly to freezing. In the year 1900, a man named Bill Curtis, a big, burly guy, sometimes called the father of American amateur athletics, died in an ice storm near the peak. An ice storm in June. In total, nearly 150 people have met their end on or near Mount Washington, usually because of poor planning. And then there's the record. On April 10th, 1934, five men were camped inside a small weather observatory on the peak when a massive storm swept in. Also witnessing the storm were nine cats. Observer Sal Palukia wrote about the storm in his logbook. I dropped all other activities and concentrated on observations. Everyone in the house was mobilized as during a war attack and assigned a job. It was during that storm that the crew witnessed what was then the highest wind speed ever recorded, 231 miles per hour, which is as powerful as an F4 tornado. Will they believe it was our first thought. I felt then the full responsibility of that startling measurement. Was my timing correct? Was the method okay? Was the calibration curve right? Was the stopwatch accurate? It was, and the measurement is one reason Mount Washington calls itself home of the world's worst weather. You've stumbled through the fogs of London. You've been soaked in Seattle, but nothing compares to Mount Washington, home of the world's very worst weather. The slogan is debatable, but the weather is pretty nasty, and it has sold a lot of bumper stickers. If you dislike the weather in your home, come to Mount Washington. It's even worse. Today, the mountain is much more of a circus than ever. There's an eight-mile road to the summit that tourists can pay to drive up in the summer. You can also summit by way of the famous Cog Railway, a marvel of engineering that dates back to the 1860s. At the top, there's a giant parking lot, a sturdy communications tower, the old observatory, now a museum, and a three-and-a-half million-dollar visitor center and weather observatory that's built into the side of the mountain like a concrete iceberg. Want to see the summit right now? You can. There's a live stream on the Mount Washington Observatory website that feeds images from the peak 24-7. To find a time before all of this madness, a time when the peak was still just a pile of loose rocks hiding in the clouds, you have to go back almost 200 years. The first known cabin on Mount Washington was built in the early 1820s by a guy named Ethan Allen Crawford. It was about a mile from the summit. His father, Abel Crawford, was the first white pioneer to inhabit what we now call Crawford Notch, a gorge that runs along the presidential range's western side. At age 75, Abel became the first person to summit Mount Washington by horse. But it was his son, Ethan Allen, who carved the bridle path and led him up there. He was a big, burly dude. According to an 1855 guidebook by John Spaulding, people called him the White Mountain Giant. The first display of Ethan's giant strength recorded is of his carrying on his head across the Amanusik River a potash kettle weighing 400 pounds. According to Spaulding, Ethan Allen would catch wild bucks and mountain lions in the forest and carry them home on his shoulders. He trapped 10 bears in a single fall and kept one of them as a pet. He was like the Paul Bunyan of New England. 
Ethan Allen and his dad ran an inn in Crawford Notch and were the first guys to take tourists up Mount Washington. Travelers were probably just as excited to see the White Mountain Giant as they were to see the White Mountains themselves. Step right up, folks, for a chance to see the bear taming, bobcat slaying, kindly and compassionate colossus, Ethan Allen Crawford. In the early 1800s, tourists were few and far between, maybe a dozen a year. But in the 1820s, a medical scare started to sweep the nation, and the Crawfords were perfectly poised to cash in. There begins to be a discussion both in the medical press and then in the sort of public press, about how, you know, taking time off from work might be good for you. Uh, it could refresh you. Uh, you would be better at your job. This is Cindy Aaron, by the way, a professor of history emerita at the University of Virginia. People began to worry that middle-class men were suffering from what was called brain fatigue. Brain fatigue. There were fancy resorts popping up all over the place, in places like Newport, White Sulphur Springs, Saratoga, but... The problem with vacations for 19th century Americans uh, is that vacationers were at leisure, allegedly, and leisure held all sorts of dangers. You might be tempted to drink, to gamble, because they were like bowling alleys at these places. Bowling alleys. So because there were these dangers at these fashionable resorts, what you find in the last half of the 19th century is all sorts of vacations, uh, types of vacations emerging where middle-class people could take them, but they wouldn't have to worry about the dangers of too much idleness. Idleness. So this is where you get the introduction of historical sightseeing, of professional development trips, and camping. And if you were camping, of course, you couldn't be idle. You had to pitch a tent. You had to go out and forage for food. You didn't have to worry about being at a fashionable resort where you might, you know, meet a handsome stranger or a pretty stranger and start flirting. But camping in the 1800s isn't just about avoiding sex and booze and bowling alleys. It's also about cultivating a sophisticated persona. It's a way of asserting your bona fides. This is Dona Brown. She wrote a book about New England tourism in the 19th century. It's a way of saying I am an, a well-educated but also a sensitive human being. I'm a person who understands scenery, who values non-monetary things, who values culture, who values art and spiritual experiences. You can imagine why, for these early tourists, Mount Washington was ideal. It was of historical interest as the tallest peak in the Northeast. It was aesthetically valuable because of the view. And it was physically demanding enough to feel like a respectable form of vacation. And should the mood strike, you could still do a little surreptitious flirting in one of the many Crawford Notch inns. The commercial development of the White Mountain region really gets started in the 1830s. And by the 1850s, you can start to see these very large-scale hotels, many of them uh, funded or sponsored by railroads. In other words, this is when the construction of the second greatest show on Earth really gets underway. In 1804, the 10th New Hampshire Turnpike shortens travel time between the Connecticut River Valley and Portland, Maine by a full two weeks. The road runs straight through Crawford Notch where Ethan Allen and his dad Abel were living. In 1819, Ethan Allen finishes the first bridle path up Mount Washington, significantly lowering the bar for who can get to the top and how hard it is to summit. Other kinds of infrastructure that you might not think about, too, like guidebooks, become 
uh, very highly organized and commercialized in the 1850s, uh, sort of almost on the same trajectory as the, as the physical infrastructure. In 1825, Gideon Davidson publishes The Fashionable Tour, a travel guide that popularizes travel from Saratoga Springs up to Niagara Falls and then back down to Boston. Later, he amends his guidebook to include a visit to the White Mountains. The emotions which one receives from the grand and majestic scenery which surround him here are utterly beyond the power of description. There is no single object upon which the eye rests and which the mind may grasp, but the vast and multiplied features of the landscape actually bewilder while they delight. Especially by the 1850s, the guidebooks give these extremely explicit instructions. Never have you felt these feelings before, it'll say. You know? <laughs> this is the feeling you feel as you stand before the awesome nature of this environment, you know? <laughs> it's like, really? I do? <laughs> so at the same time the physical infrastructure is being built by the capitalists, artists, poets, painters, and thinkers... They're building up the ideas and the feelings that we associate with these places. In 1851, the Grand Trunk Railroad announces a plan to provide rail service to Gorham, New Hampshire, a town that will later be known as the Gateway to the White Mountains. Hotels spring up to accommodate tourists. Towns in the area swell in size. Mount Washington is ready to hit the big time. In the summer of 1852, Joseph Hall and Lucius Rosebrook built a hotel on top of Mount Washington. Its four-foot-thick walls were made of stone boulders blasted from the mountain's summit. The roof and sheathing were made from wooden boards carried eight miles up the bridle path by horses and men. Rosebrook himself carried the front door up on his back. To keep the roof from blowing off, they draped four two-inch-thick chains over the hotel and anchored them into the bedrock with heavy bolts and cement. Rosebrook and Hall called their hotel the Summit House. Thirty hungry hikers arrived two days before the hotel was ready to open. Rosebrook and Hall had food, but no utensils, so they and their wives carved spoons and forks out of wood. In the few short weeks before the hiking season came to a close, they made around $2,200 which in 1852 was worth, like, way more. They came back the next spring to find their hotel had survived, but their celebration was short-lived because a couple of no-good copycats decided to build another stone hotel literally yards away from the Summit House. A guy named Samuel Fitch Spaulding duplicated their design. Rocks, chains, the whole bit. Except his hotel was bigger. And it had a cooler name. It was called the Tip Top House. For one very tense year, the Summit House and the Tip Top House competed, kind of like a McDonald's that's right across the street from a Wendy's. But in 1854, the hotels joined forces. That year, Sam Spaulding's son, John, penned a White Mountain guidebook that would double as a brochure for his family's expanding mountaintop venture. These two houses are unitedly managed by a company of hardy mountaineers, who spared no pains to make this famous resort a true home to the admiring stranger. Ye who would enjoy the sports of stream and forest, come to these mountains. Of course, the guidebooks don't mention the downsides of vacationing atop of Mount Washington. In one account, a group of hikers struggled to get to the top of the mountain during an August storm. 
When they arrived at the Summit House, the temperature was only 9 degrees, and that was next to the stove. It was 6 degrees in the dining room. Sometimes, guests would plan to stay for a night, only to be trapped on the summit for days before the weather cleared up enough for them to get down the mountain. But still, these sophisticated tourists came from Boston and Portland, Maine, from New York and Philadelphia, and they asserted the hell out of their bona fides. If you look in the, in the guest registers at the Crawford House um, early on in the 1830s, it reads like a kind of list of all of the greatest writers and artists of the United States in the first half of the 19th century. It's like, you know, Hawthorne was here, and you know, Thoreau was here, and all these different kinds of people who become important politicians or important cultural figures. From what some of the visitors were writing in the guest books, you can argue that people were taking their cues from the poets and the philosophers. On July 17, 1854, Mary Huntington composes this. Space, thou art pure and boundless expanse for golden globes to make their mountains in. Room, where all bodies mentioned may begin. Where planets wheel along in merry dance, and comets voyage on in wild careers. But just like today, some people haven't gotten the word that climbing a mountain is supposed to be transcendent. Some just thought this was a damp, drafty, noisy hotel. Big jampers, I'd as soon sleep in a swamp. And when one gets up in the morning, his clothes hang about him like a woman's gown with now skirts. If ever I'm the bottom again, may the devil sweep me if I climb these rocks another time. Both of these entries were written a year before white men first stumbled across what would later become Yosemite National Park. Yellowstone wouldn't be explored for another 15 years. The American Civil War, hell, the invention of the bicycle was still seven years away. And already, Mount Washington had been conquered, packaged, and sold as a true American wilderness. If you look at the process by which developers of White Mountain scenery and White Mountain tourism made White Mountain scenery accessible to people. Um, it is a process that is exportable. You can then take it to Yosemite or wherever you want to take it. And when I say made it available, I'm not just thinking about trains and hotels, but I'm thinking about people who write uh, guidebooks or people who publish collections of images or painters who go there and paint images and then sell them. That, uh, that make people feel that they can understand the landscape, that the landscape has meaning for them. Wild, untouched, uninterpreted, unmediated scenery is nothing, it's just wilderness. Of course, that same process that transformed Mount Washington was exported to the West. It's that process that eventually shaped our ideas about the Grand Canyon and Old Faithful that brought us the American road trip and Route 66. And meanwhile, Mount Washington continued to transform until it really was more like P.T. Barnum's Big Top Circus than a scenic escape. First, the carriage road was constructed, then the Cog Railway. Then, in the 1870s, the Summit House was replaced by a mammoth three-story wooden hotel with 91 separate rooms. In 1908, everything but the tip-top house burned down in a huge blaze, and then they rebuilt it all over again. Nowadays, people don't just visit Mount Washington because of the view. They go to see the train or the Old Stone Hotel. They go to see firsthand how New England's tallest mountain 
became home of the world's worst weather and the second greatest show on Earth. Ye who would enjoy the sports of stream and forest, come to these mountains. Ye who delight to behold the works of nature in their most sublime flights, come to these mountains. Ye who have a love for novelty and a desire for true pleasure, come and behold God's wisdom displayed in the bold outlines of this gigantic monument of his almighty That's it for Word of Mouth this week. This week's show was produced by Hannah McCarthy, Nick Capodice, Sam Evans-Brown, Taylor Quimby, and me, Erica Janik. Do you have a question about New Hampshire? Anything, big or small, silly or serious, we want to hear it. Get in touch with us at wordofmouth at nhpr.org. Outside In's theme music comes from Breakmaster Cylinder. Civics 101 is brought to you in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Word of Mouth is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Space, thou art pure and boundless expanse for golden globes to make their mountains in. Room where all bodies mention may begin, where planets wheel along in merry dance and comets voyage on in wild careers where the colossal structures high may rise of God's vast universe, the boundless skies, whose ghostly exchanges in simile appear thy center everywhere. Yet who can scan thy wide circumference? Wings of light can never bring it once within one sight. How fathomless thy depths, no poumon can them measure. Boundless as eternity art thou, mysterious space, immensity.